Would you please take the word of God and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 26. <clears throat> Exodus and chapter 26, and as you turn there, we have seen thus far, if you remember, to go back through the order, if you want to look at the display of the tabernacle, we began in uh, chapter 25 with the ark, which is the bottom portion of this, and then the mercy seat, which is the top portion. And so that's the first thing that's mentioned. And we made note that the tabernacle was built for the ark. This is the presence of God. Uh, this is where God said He would commune with man in between the cherubims. And so this was the first piece we talked about in Exodus chapter 25, the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat. And then we uh, mentioned, he mentioned the table of uh, shoebread or showbread. I was, my dad came and uh, he mentioned, son, it's not shoebread, it's showbread. I said, okay. How many of you say showbread? How many of you say shoebread? Okay, half and half. So um, I told my dad, I said, well, I, I was thinking about uh, whatever I do, I have to be consistent. So I'm going to choose one. <laughs> But I think since we're half and half, I'm going to use both, okay? Uh, so in the ark, we find that Jesus is the ark. Inside the ark, you remember, uh, there was the manna. Uh, there was the tables of stone, the Ten Commandments. And there was Aaron's rod that budded. And we talked about how those things signify that Jesus is our substance. He fulfilled the law. But he also, in the, in the, the bud from Aaron's rod, Jesus brought life to death. The rod was dead, but it budded. And so it's a picture of the resurrection. And the mercy seat is the place of communion with God. And we know, and we'll see later, as the high priest would once a year, he would bring the blood from the brazen altar and go into the Holy of Holies, which was only one time a year, the Day of Atonement, and he would sprinkle blood on top of the mercy seat. That's a table super. On top of the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. Then we talked about the table of showbread. And we talked about how Jesus is the table. That He is the one who brings us into fellowship. And so not only is Jesus Christ the reason for fellowship, but Jesus is also the bread on the table of showbread because He is the substance of our fellowship. And so we talked about the table of showbread. And then we talked about the candlestick. And in that, we find that it was, remember, beaten into one piece. And we talked about uh, how there was the uh, almond buds or blooms that were designed on each one of the branches for designs on each branch. And so we saw that and we talked about how the design of the candlestick was to give light in the tabernacle. By the way, that light was to burn all day and all night. There was no windows in the tabernacle, as you can see here, the walls that we'll talk about in just a moment. And so this would light the tabernacle all day and all night. The light was not to go out. The priests were to uh, put more oil in the morning and in the evening. And so we talked about how Jesus is the candlestick. He is the light of the world. Uh, then we went into talking about the covering. Now, right now you find that the tabernacle is without any coverings. And so, again, Jesus is the Ark of the Covenant. He is pictured in the table of showbread. He is pictured in the candlestick, but he is also pictured in the curtains. And we talked about how there were four layers of those curtains. Uh, I'm going to put them on 
as in the order that they went, then I will take them off because we're going to be looking at the actual structure this evening. The first one was a curtain of fine twine linen. The best material they had, it was white, uh, reflecting the purity and the holiness of Jesus Christ. And the emphasis of this curtain is on the deity of Jesus Christ by the colors that we find. They would be blue, purple, and scarlet. Blue signifying that Jesus Christ came from heaven. Uh, uh, purple signifying his pedigree. Uh, not just that he was the son of David, but he was the son of God, and his pedigree was divine. And then we have the scarlet, which is an emblem of suffering, and the scarlet letter uh, shows us the purpose that Jesus Christ fulfilled when he came. And so we have this first curtain, and the design of those colors would be of the cherubim. We have a psalm that indicates to us, I will abide in thy tabernacle under the shadow of thy wings. Now I believe here, now obviously there'll be different designs, but do you see here this design where you have the two cherubim with their wings touching each other in the middle? I believe here that probably the design, now I'm not categoric, but I believe that the design would have been the wings stretching from one end to the next. Uh, the psalmist says, I will abide in that tabernacle under the shadow of thy wings. It, signifying that the wings would be covering as the priests would go into the tabernacle, they would lift up their heads and they would see the cherubim in the colors of blue, purple, and scarlet. And that was the first. Now, this one was 28, uh, 28 cubits uh, wide. Now, we talked about how the tabernacle would lift up uh, off the ground about 10 cubits, but when this overlaid, it would be a little short. It would not go all the way to the ground. However, then, there is a second. And by the way, uh, what is this called? What is this piece called? It is called the what? It, that's the tabernacle, he said. The reason why he says this is the tabernacle, he says the next layer, which is made of, um, remember what it's made of? Goat's hair. This one will go all the way to the ground. It will cover the first layer, but this is referred to as the tent. The tent upon the tabernacle. So this is the tabernacle, and uh, this second layer of goats here would overlay the first layer and would go all the way down to the ground, covering the first layer. The only ones that would be able to see the first layer would be the priests that would go inside the tabernacle. Now we see that the theme of the goats, the, 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 the curtain maids of goats hair, who was involved in making the goats hair? It was the women. Uh, and we mention here that the goat, uh, while the first curtain emphasizes the deity of Christ, the second curtain emphasizes the humanity of Christ, the fact that Jesus Christ was robed in flesh, but yet he was still God. And when he came, he was made of a woman. That's what the New Testament tells us. And we know that the goat was used on 11 occasions, five feasts and six sins, where the goat's hair, or the goat, was specifically required to be an offering for sin. And that is exactly who Jesus Christ was. Now, some people asked last week, and I thought it was a good question, well, isn't Jesus Christ the lamb? Isn't the goat a picture of sin and the lamb a picture of uh, perfection? And I say, yes. But the lamb emphasizes the perfection of Christ. The goat emphasizes that God hath made him to be sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so the second layer emphasizes the humanity of Christ. 
The fact that Jesus Christ would be offered as an offering for our sin, that He would become sin for us, showing us that God does not overlook our sin, but that God punished our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. Then there were two uh, other layers. The next one is referred to not as a tabernacle, not as a tent, but as a covering. And this covering would overlay the tent. That's what the Bible says in Exodus chapter 26. This was ram skin dipped in dye, red dye. And so we see that this would be red, and this is an emphasis on uh, the suffering, the suffering aspect of Jesus Christ. And then there would be one more layer, and that would be the badgered skin, and this is what everybody would see on the outside. Nobody would see the red. Nobody would see the inside curtain and all the cherubim in, in blue and uh, purple and scarlet. They would only see this brown color, not that attractive, but badger skin shows us, speaks uh, of the fact that Jesus Christ, there was no outward attraction. There was no beauty that we should behold. The beauty that we know about Jesus Christ is not uh, what we see on the outside, but is what we see on the inside. God in the flesh. He came, His name shall be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. So with those curtains now in mind, we come now to another part, and if we uh, summarize Exodus chapter 26, uh, from uh, verse 1 to verse 14, he deals with the curtains that I just talked about. From verse 15 to 30, he deals with the boards. Now, if you look at the tabernacle here on the display, you'll see some boards going from bottom to top. There's going to be 20 on uh, the uh, south side, 20 on the north side. If you see the stickers, I put it so this is not the direction, but this is how the camp would be set up always. The entrance would be on the east side. This would be the north, this would be the south, and this over here would be the west side. It was always set up that way, and the children of Israel, and they were uh, broken up by their tribes all around the tabernacle and that set up. And so uh, this is, we see that um, there would be 20 boards on the north side, 20 boards on the south side, six boards on the west side, and then two boards on the corners, which would be, you could say, uh, eight on the west side uh, that connect the sides from the back. Uh, there would be no boards on the front. We'll see the, there's a curtain with pillars and then dividing the holy place from the holy of holies. We'll see in this chapter what comes after the structure of the boards is the veil from verse 31 to verse 33. And then verse 36 through 37 is the door. Uh, and the door is not this door of the outer court, but this door of the actual tabernacle. Now, <clears throat> I want to begin here, and I, I would like to bring your attention, because in this study we're going to concern ourselves with the structure that would, that would undergird the tabernacle. I, I put it this way, because if you notice, I just want to bring you your attention to two verses that we're going to read in just a moment. Uh, the first one is verse 15, when he says, And thou shalt make boards for the what? Okay, so he doesn't say you're going to make boards to make up the tabernacle. You're going to make boards for the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? That's what he said the tabernacle was, right? The first curtain. This is 
the tabernacle. So the structure, the boards, is for the tabernacle. Okay? Uh, notice in verse 30, he will end by saying this in verse 30, And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was showed thee in the mount. So I want you to keep this in mind. We have the tabernacle. The structure, the boards, are there to rear up the tabernacle. Does that make sense? So that's how we have to understand uh, the boards and how they come into the picture uh, for this tabernacle. So let's, we're going to read our text this evening, begin reading in verse 15 down to verse 30. So Exodus chapter 26, verse 15, the word of God says, And thou shalt make boards for the tabernacle of Shittim wood standing up. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the breadth of one board. Two tenons, uh, that, that's a, a word, you could say a, a hand, uh, shall there be in one board. So I'm going I'm to illustrate as we go so that we have an understanding. So this would be one board. At the bottom of the board, there would be two tenons or two hands. It is a way for those boards to be clamped to the bottom uh, structure, to the bottom foundation. So on the bottom, you don't see this on here, but there would be two tenons or two hands on the bottom of each one of those boards as a way to lock in those boards with the structure or the foundation. Uh, we continue, notice he says, um, uh, verse 17, two tenons shall there be in one board, set in order one against the other, against another, thus shalt thou make for all the boards of the tabernacle. And thou shalt make the boards for the tabernacle twenty boards on the south side, southward. And thou shalt make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards. The sockets here is the foundation. Now, I don't know if you notice here, but you will notice on the bottom there is the silver color. That is what is the socket. The socket is where the boards are going to fit in. There's going to be two hands at the bottom of the board, and the sockets, there's going to be two sockets, one socket for each hand, two sockets per board. So each um, uh, tenon fits in one socket. And here, if you would look closely afterwards, you could see each line. And you will see that the equivalent here is that on the silver, there's, there's two, uh, um, what he refers to as sockets for each board matching the two tenons. He says, uh, now those of silver under the 20 boards, verse 19, two sockets under one board for his two tenons and two sockets under another board for his two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, there shall be 20 boards and there are 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under one board and two sockets under another board. So it's the same pattern for each side. And for the sides of the tabernacle westward, so if you notice here, this is this side, the end of the tabernacle on the west side, thou shalt make six boards. So we have 20 on the south, 20 on the north. There are uh, 40 tenons, 40 sockets on each side. We come on the west, there are six boards. And notice two boards, verse 23, and two boards shalt thou make for the corners of the tabernacle in two sides. And so you have six on the west side, with two boards on the corner. So that would be eight boards on the west side. 
Verse 24, and they shall be coupled together beneath, and they shall be coupled together above the head. So that means that they would be coupled together. Uh, they, the, there is a corner, a corner piece that would lock in the boards on the north side and on the south side with the boards on the west side. Okay, keep this in mind, the corner, the corner piece. It's important to have a corner in any structure. It keeps the structure together. And he saw, verse 24, And they shall be coupled together beneath, and they shall be coupled together above the head of it unto one ring. Thus shall it be for them both. They shall be for the two corners. And they shall be eight boards, and their sockets of silver, sixteen sockets, two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. So the same pattern. You have eight boards on the west side. Uh, there are two tenons on each board and two sockets for the foundation connecting the tenons with the sockets uh, on the west side. Verse 26. So here that's the boards. Now we're going to look at the bars. If you notice on the tabernacle, the bars that go sideways, locking in the boards together. Uh, you'll see them right over here. Okay, There uh, should be three uh, layers. Now let's look some details on those boards. He says, And thou shalt make bars of shittim wood, five for the boards of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for uh, the boards of the side of the tabernacle, for the two sides westwards. And the middle bar in the midst of the boards shall reach from end to end. And thou shalt overlay the boards with gold and make their rings of gold for places for the bars. And thou shalt overlay the bars with gold. Notice there would be five. Five bars on each side. And I want you to notice here, the middle bar, this would be one single bar. How many bars, he said, are there? Five per side. The one in the middle is one. There will be one here probably about halfway, another one, the other half, one on the bottom for the half, and another one for the bottom. That's five. And so that would be the layout of those bars, five on, on the north side, five on the west side, and it would be the same on the west side, although shorter. One bar in the middle would be the full length, two on the top, and two on the bottom. And so the same pattern for every single side. Now notice what he says. In verse 29, And thou shalt overlay the boards with gold, and make their rings of gold for places for the bars, and thou shalt overlay the bars with gold. And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was show thee in the mount. So I'd like to preach this uh, evening on, if you go back to verse 15, thou shalt make boards for the tabernacle. I'd like to preach this evening on this title, the boards, boards to rear up the tabernacle. Boards to rear up the tabernacle. Now, as we look here at our text, we remember the detail that this first curtain, this first layer, is called the tabernacle. Now, without structure, this is what it would look like. Correct? Uh, there would be no way for anybody to serve in a room or a space. Uh, there, was, there would be no structure. Uh, this would kind of uh, just fly around at the wind, but uh, the structure would keep the tabernacle in place. 
And so there's some importance here to this tabernacle, uh, and there are things that we can note here from our text uh, that gives us some indications. Uh, because if you remember, what is in the tabernacle thus far is the place in the Ark of the Covenant, the place of communion, the place where God will meet with man. This is not just called the Ark of the Covenant. It is also called the Ark of the Testimony. The tabernacle is also called the Tabernacle of the Testimony. And so with all of those elements, now you bring in the structure, but the structure does this. It provides man an entrance. It provides man a room where man can be in communion with God. The structure is there. And by the way, we'll see that the structure is a picture of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ, by virtue of His humanity, came to earth so that we might have an entrance unto God. Uh, you, you see, before the tabernacle, let's remember, there has been no tabernacle. There has been no temple. There has been no meeting place with God. Men, all that they've done thus far is they've built altars. That's all we read thus far in the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. But here God provides a meeting place with God. We might even say that there has been meeting uh, times when God has met with man. Moses at Mount Sinai. All of those times. But here this is going to be a place where man can find an entrance to God. This means that we have to go all the way back to the time when man did not have entrance to God, and that is all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If you remember when man sinned and uh, God uh, recognized and he uh, came uh, one day in the cool of the garden and he was looking for Adam and Eve and they were hiding themselves from the presence of the Lord because of their sin. And when God found out that they had sinned, he kicked them out of the garden and he put a cherubim to guard the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that they could not come in. They could not go to the place of communion with God where God met with them and talked with them. They were shut off. So in the sense, this is the first time in, since the Garden of Eden where God says, I'm going to make a place where you can enter and have communion with God. Now we're going to talk about those details, but the truth is you have to have the structure in order to go into the tabernacle. Uh, we continue, if you notice in our text, I'd like to point out a few things that we read. Uh, again, uh, we look at the details. By the way, the, uh, the material is the same material that was used for the Ark of the Covenant. It was to be made of the shittim wood and overlaid with gold. It was the same for the table of shewbread. It was to be made of shittim wood and overlaid with gold. And every single one of those uh, boards were made of shittim wood and overlaid with gold. So that provides for us here a reminder of what that exactly uh, signifies. Uh, this again, I've already dealt with it, but let me give you a refresher. It's back in verse 29. Notice in verse 29, he says, And thou shalt overlay the boards with gold, and make their rings of gold for places for the bars, and thou shalt overlay the bars with gold. So there are two primary materials that are used for the boards, the wood 
and the gold. Now, we have already noted how these two materials point us to the two natures of Jesus Christ, in that Jesus Christ is called the Son of Man, but that He is also called the Son of God. Uh, The Son of Man is emphasized in the wood. The Son of God is emphasized by the gold. You see, the Shittim tree is the only tree that grows to any significant size in the desert through which Israel passed. It is a tree that does well in dry soil. This tree also produces sharp thorns. Interesting. The gum of the tree was commonly used for medicinal purposes. Quite an impressive tree. Now remember, according to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, Jesus Christ would be a root as a root out of dry ground. That's what Jesus would be. Yet, when we talked about the ark, uh, we cannot see the wood. The wood cannot be seen. You only see the gold. Those boards, you would not see the wood. You would only see the gold. Uh, And the emphasis here as we think about the two natures of Jesus Christ, both His humanity and His deity, uh, we are very uh, aware that the gold is what stands on the outside. We should be betrayed by emphasizing too much the humanity of Jesus Christ. We must never neglect that He was the fullness of God. And we deny the sects that reject or deny the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, He was made of a woman. He was made in the likeness of men, but He was still God, all of God in Christ. We can read about that in Hebrews chapter 1. But this uh, tells us of the mystery of godliness. What's the mystery of godliness? That God was manifest in the flesh. That's the mystery of godliness. And so the material here uh, brings us back to the material that was used for the Ark of the Covenant and for the table of shewbread, typifying uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'd like to bring here uh, your attention down to verse 19 as we read about, notice uh, with me, Exodus 26 verse 19. He says, And thou shalt make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards, two sockets under one board for his two tenons, and two sockets under another board for his two tenons. Notice here what material is to be used for the sockets. It is of silver. Silver. So the word socket, as I already mentioned, means this. It means basis foundation. And if you notice here on the, this uh, d- uh, tabernacle display, you'll see the silver at the bottom. These are the sockets. And there would be, you'll see, if you see lines here, there would be two sockets for each board. Each board at the bottom having two tenons or two hands locking the tenons into the sockets uh, of this foundation or this basis. The basis is made up of the material that is called silver here in our text. Now, where would this silver come from? 
Uh, what is, and we'll see here, what is the shekel that is mentioned, and what purpose was the silver given? Uh, let, let's consider, if you hold your place here in Exodus chapter 26, uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, just a few chapters later. Uh, all of the information about the tabernacle is given and we find that after that the people began to work and they began to gather the material for the construction of the tabernacle. And Exodus chapter 30 is uh, that part and we come down if you notice with me verse 11 and the Lord spake unto Moses saying when thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord. Now I want you to notice those words. Every man shall give a ransom for his soul unto the Lord. When thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. This they shall give. Every one that passeth among them that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is twenty geras. And half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. So here he speaks that everybody should bring a half shekel, a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. So there was a monetary standard. And they, every single one was to bring that in. Uh, if you notice verse 15, he says, The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. Every single person was to bring a half shekel, and I'll show you why that's silver, when they shall give an offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. Now, some people say, well, wait a minute. Are they to bring money uh, to make an atonement for their souls? Well, hold on, hold on. Pay attention to the whole message. I'm not done. Hold that thought, verse 16. And thou shalt take the atonement money for the children of Israel, and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your soul. So they were to bring a half shekel. Everybody, the rich cannot bring more, the poor cannot bring less. Everybody, half shekel. Now, what is a half shekel? Turn with me to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 27. Leviticus chapter 27, notice verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When a man shall make a singular vow, the person shall be for the Lord by thy estimation, and thy estimation shall be of the male from twenty years old, even unto sixty years old, even thy estimation shall be fifty shekels of what? Silver, after the shekel of the sanctuary. So we already mentioned in Exodus chapter 30, the shekel of the sanctuary. We learn in Leviticus chapter 27 that the shekel of the sanctuary is the silver. That's the standard. So shekel is a measure. The material is actually silver. Now, for what purpose was this half-silver shekel given? Well, he had already said in, back in Exodus chapter 30, he says, to make, to give an offering unto the Lord, to make an atonement for your souls. At the end of verse 16, that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. Now what he is trying to teach the children of Israel that they're going to bring the material together. 
the silver, and every single person in Israel, probably every single adult, whether rich or poor, was to bring a half shekel to contribute the silver, to contribute to the construction of the tabernacle. And notice this would be used mainly, the greater portion of the silver would be used for the foundation of the tabernacle. And everybody was required to participate. And what the children of Israel will know in chapter 30 is this, that there is an, a need for atonement. There is a need for atonement. Now some people say, well, wait a minute, that seems strange that uh, these people would uh, be uh, redeemed in a sense or uh, make an atonement with, with, with money. D doesn't that seem strange? Well, I would put it to you this way that Remember, it was God that commanded these same children of Israel uh, to offer the blood of bulls and of goats and that their blood had to be shed. However, we know very well that although God commanded them to bring that as a way to atone for their sins, God said that the blood of bulls and of goats could not take away sin. These were used as a figure of the Messiah. Remember Hebrews 10.4, uh, it was God who commanded the children of Israel to bring a sacrifice to make an atonement for sin, that the blood of the innocent would be shed for their sins. But Hebrews 10.4 says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. There is only one person who can take away sin. That's the blood of Jesus Christ. The point is, God, by commanding the children of Israel to offer the blood of bulls and of goats as an atonement for sin, that in itself did not take away sin, but it pointed them to the Messiah who would take away their sins. And so it's the same when God commanded them to bring every one of them a half shekel of silver. They're in need of atonement. And they must recognize uh, that with their great need... Uh, they bring the silver, but the silver is a picture of what? While the blood is a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ that would be shed for our sins, I believe here that when he refers to the silver or the shekel that is to be given to make an atonement for their souls, it emphasizes there the value or the preciousness of what Christ would bring in salvation. You see, the New Testament makes it clear. Let me give you some scripture uh, as reference. Psalm 49, verse 6 and 8 says this, and we'll go to the New Testament after that. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious and it ceaseth forever. The point that uh, God was trying to teach His people is that the redemption for their souls was precious. That the redemption of their souls would have to cost something. Now while they would bear the cost of the blood of bulls and of goats, because that would come from their own animals, the silver would come from their own possessions, but it is a figure. You see, the blood of, uh, of Jesus Christ that was shed is not something that we gave of our own selves. It's something that God gave. 
on our behalf. Uh, the preciousness of redemption is found in the person of Christ and what He did on our behalf. If you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, I want you to look, notice here in 1 Peter chapter 1, I believe here that Peter, uh, familiar with the tabernacle in a sense, references the idea of the preciousness of salvation. Turn with me to 1 Peter and uh, chapter 1. Notice with me verse, let's begin reading in verse 18. Notice, 1 Peter 1, 18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with what? Corruptible things. As what? <laughs> as silver and gold. From your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Oh, wait a minute. What tradition had they received from their fathers? Well, one of those traditions was that everybody were, was to participate and everybody was to bring a half shekel for the tabernacle as an atonement for their souls. That's the tradition they received. But you see, there was no redemption in that. And they knew that they there was no redemption in that. You can't purchase your salvation by your riches. We know that we are redeemed not with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God, seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth of the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born of, uh, again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. He says, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of God endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. You see, the understanding was not that silver would make an atonement for their souls. The understanding is that they needed an atonement, and that that atonement would be precious. That atonement, again, is not purchased by corruptible things as silver and gold, but it's uh, purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. If we continue in our text, we notice some other things. Uh, down in, notice in verse um, 30. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 26. In verse 30, well, back in verse uh, 24 and 25, it says, And they shall be coupled together beneath, and they shall be coupled together above the head of it unto one ring. Thus shall it be for them both. They shall be for the two corners. And they shall be eight boards, and their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. And so here we see that there would be this structure that would keep this tabernacle up, that would keep it steady, that would keep it solid, yet easily movable. And uh, they would be able to dismantle the tabernacle very quickly by taking all the things apart 
and be able to assemble it very quickly back together. Now he says in verse 30, And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was showed thee in the mount. So, here is the tabernacle. Layer 1, fine twine linen. Layer 2, goat's hair. Layer 3, ram skin dyed red. And layer 4 would be badgered skin. The tabernacle is there. But there's no way for man to enter. There's no way for man to enter into communion with God. There's no way for man to find an entrance to God. There's no way for man to find communion with God unless Jesus Christ is raised up. Unless Jesus Christ comes to earth. Unless Jesus Christ offers Himself as an atonement for our sins by His precious blood. And because Jesus came, now we have a place of communion. It is not that we know about God and that we know who He is. Uh, it is that He wants to have fellowship with us. And He not only tells us that by who He is, but He also tells us that by providing a way for us to enter into the place of communion. And so the tabernacle is going to be reared up. There are some things that are used to describe Jesus Christ. One of those is found in 1 John chapter 1. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. Notice those words. We have been shown eternal life which was with the Father. Well, we, we have no access to the Father. We can't come to the Father. We are unworthy. We have, we have sinned and we are at enmity. We are at odds with God. But when Jesus Christ came, when Jesus was raised up, when He was made of a woman, when He was made in the likeness of man, we saw who He was. He was manifested unto us. But He was manifested unto us so that He might bring us into communion with God. So that He might provide an entrance into communion with God. That's why He was manifested to us. In Galatians, turn with me to the book of Galatians. Let's look at a, a few more uh, scripture. Galatians chapter 4. Notice with me Galatians chapter 4. <clears throat> Verse 4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive, what? The adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. 
And if a son, then an heir of God, here it is, through Christ. You see, in the fullness of the time, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, He might gather together, notice that word, gather together in one all things in Christ. You see, the structure is there to show us that this is the place where God wants us to gather. The tabernacle is a picture of Christ. We have been brought in, therefore we are in Christ. When we find this expression throughout the New Testament, in Christ, in Christ, we are now seated in heavenly places in Christ. What does that expression mean, in Christ? It means we've been brought in. It means we've been invited in. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, not only we'll see, because the next thing is the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. And we know that no man can have entrance into the holy of holies but through Jesus Christ. I don't want to preach next week's message, but the point here is that he, might, he wants to gather all things in Christ. By the way, it was in Genesis 49 verse 10, when speaking of Judah, that Jacob said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. Shiloh is a word for the Messiah. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Unto Christ shall the gathering of the people be. Gather where? Into the presence of God. Ephesians 1.10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, even in him. I'd like to end in Ephesians chapter 2, if you go there with me, in Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to notice here in verse 11, he deals with those believers in Ephesus and he reminds them of their former life and he reminds them of how they've been brought in. Notice in Ephesians 2 verse 11, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. When you look at the tabernacle, we'll see later that there is the court of the Gentiles. You know what the court of the Gentiles is? It's, it's this court. The Gentiles were forbidden to enter. Uh, actually, the Levites would guard the tabernacle. No man could slip under and could, could go through the tabernacle. Everybody was forbidden. Nobody could come in. Uh, and by the way, uh, the majority of the Israelites could not come in either. Not just the Gentiles, but only uh, the Levitical priesthood, the tribe of Levi. And so this is called the Gentile court. Everybody was on the outside. And by the way, even the one who had the highest position, he was also on the outside. He, once a year, would uh, take the blood that was shed at the brazen altar, and he would take it into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle the blood on his, uh, on his vesture and on the mercy seat, but he would know by that that he is not worthy to come into the place and have communion with God. And so he says, remember you Gentiles, uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 2 verse 11, in time past you were on the outside who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. That at that time you were, notice, without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel 
and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were on the outside, and there was no way for you to come in. But now, here it is, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace. Who? Jesus is our peace. Notice. Who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in the flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man, so making peace. You see, we, we know that Jesus Christ and the tabernacle and the curtain, that, that's Jesus Christ, that's the tabernacle. But then the tabernacle has a structure whereby the tabernacle is raised up. It is put forth, and the reason why it is raised up is so that man might know that there's a way where man can gain entrance to God that he does not deserve and that he does not have. And when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, He came to break down the middle wall of partition. Now we'll talk about this. I believe the middle wall of partition is uh, the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. And uh, when Jesus Christ came, He broke down the middle wall of partition. We know at the crucifixion that the veil, not in the tabernacle but in the temple, was rent in twain from top to bottom. What was God saying by that? By the way, God ripped it down. Himself. Why did He do that? Because now He is telling men that, he, that we can have access in Christ. You see, yes, Christ is the tabernacle, but Christ is also the structure. He is the means by which we can enter into the very presence of God and have access to God. Why? Because we can be justified by faith. And so we've been granted entrance. Uh, Jesus hath broken down the middle wall of partition, Ephesians 2.14, that was between us, between who? Between God and man, between a holy God and sinful man. Notice having abolished in His flesh the enmity, He did that by the cross. He took away the enmity, the animosity that God had for sin, that our sin had to be judged, and Jesus provided a way for our sin to be judged. For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. He says, and came and preached peace to you which are far off, and to them that were made nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. This is what the tabernacle, this is what the structure of the tabernacle is about. The structure of the tabernacle in the boards of shittim wood overlaid with gold. On the foundation of the precious silver. Through Christ, who was raised up, made of a woman, made in the likeness of men, we through the cross and through His shed blood, we have access by one Spirit unto the Father. We who have no access, we don't deserve access with God. We don't deserve to speak with God. But in Christ, we have been granted access. I'd like to bring your attention to one more. I know I said we'll end here, but Romans chapter 5. We find some precious words in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, 
being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access. By faith and to this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Notice, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. You see, the reason why no man could enter is because there was no peace between God and man. Man stood in his sin and his enmity. God stand in his holiness and his righteousness. And he cannot abide sin. He cannot let man enter in. But when Christ, by, his, by the cross, by his suffering, by his shed blood, he slain the enmity that was between God and man, our sin was punished in the person of Christ, and now because we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, but the whole basis of that is because we are justified by faith. Well, what does it mean to be justified? What does it mean to be justified? You see, there are many words in the New Testament that are used. There's the word we are forgiven. That's a good word. We are redeemed. We are regenerated. Many different words. It speaks of the different aspect of salvation. But the word justified is a powerful judicial term. You see, in the law, if you stood before someone who... Uh, examines your life or sees whether you've been accused of a crime and he says, all right, well, here is the transgression that stands against you and here's the, the sins and, and you have to pay for your crimes. And so you stand in the courtroom and you're examined whether you are, you are guilty or righteous. And so the judge stands before us and he says, well, I, I see your life and uh, here's the, the, the law that you have transgressed. Here is the uh, iniquities that you, have command, uh, that you have committed and therefore you are condemned, uh, you must be judged and you stand under condemnation and there's consequences to that condemnation. But if somebody was tried and the judge says, there are no witnesses against you. I have no record of any crimes that you committed. You see, this is a stronger word than being forgiven. Uh, the judge, if he forgives someone, he says, Well, I know you've done wrong. And I know you're guilty. And I know that you ought to pay for the crimes that you've done. But I'm going to forgive you in that I'm going to overlook your sin. And I'm going, I know that you're a sinner, but I'm not going to condemn you and punish you as you deserve. That's what forgiveness means. But justified means an entirely more powerful, different thing. Being justified means the judge says, I find absolutely nothing wrong in you. You have committed no sin. You have committed no crime. You have done nothing wrong. That's what it means to be justified. And the accusation that would stand before the judge is, well, this person over here, he's been accused of this and of lying and, uh, and of cheating and, and of adultery and of all these things. And the judge looks at this list and he examines your life and he says, I see all those things that are, uh, uh, that are named against you. I see the handwriting of ordinances that are against you, but I put a stamp on your paper that says justified. You've never done those things. That's what it means to be justified. Why? 
Because a transfer has happened. God hath made him Christ to be sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you know why we can have access to the Father? Not because we're forgiven and God knows that there's sin in our life, but he kind of says, well, you know, I'm not going to condemn you for that. No, not only are we forgiven, but we are justified. And we enter into fellowship with the Father. We have access to the Father because we are justified in Christ. Because we have his righteousness. I've heard this before, and I think it is the right term to say justified means just as if I had never sinned. Or just as if I had never been a sinner. And that's true. But I like to put forth to another level. Justified means just as if I had always been Jesus Christ. Why? Because we have His righteousness. It is His record that has been placed on us And that is the only reason why you and I can have communion with God. Not because of any of your righteousness. But Pastor, I've been a good Christian for many years since I've been saved. That's not the basis of why you have access to God. Jesus Christ and His righteousness that's been imputed to your account. That's the basis. To say, well, Pastor, I played that forth a scenario when I witnessed to someone. I say, uh, uh, if you meet God when you die... And God says, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And m- most people will say, well, because I've, I've done this and I've done this and I'm trying to be a good person and, and so forth. What would you say if God says to you, why should I let you into heaven? And so we stand and there is the, uh, we're waiting to enter into the courtroom. And God calls our name. And you stand before the judge, God we who have an awareness of our sin, and you say, what would you say? What would you say? Well, if I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, I could say that my account is this, that I have lived for 33 and a half years, that I did no wrong. There was no guile in, this, in, in, in the mouth of Jesus Christ. There was no sin in Him. He was perfect, sinless. And that's not my record, but that's the record of Jesus Christ that I have. And although I don't deserve to be here, I'm not worthy to have access. I'm not worthy to get an entrance. I'm not worthy to have an inheritance. I'm not worthy to be a joint heir with Christ. Nonetheless, that is what has been given me. And that's what I've claimed. And so I come here based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be justified. Oh yes, just as if I had never sinned, just as if I had never been a sinner, but just as if I had always been Jesus Christ. You see, the structure is there to show us. Since the Garden of Eden, when communion was shut off between God and man, God says, I want man to gain entrance. And the tabernacle happens in Exodus chapter 25. But Christ happens in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see, man was still limited by this. But it is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that the separation, the enmity between God and man was torn away.
so that we could gain access, being justified by faith.